Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome again to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 38. Corvair engines for your Sonics project. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. And with me again are my two good flying buddies, Gary Motley and John Gillis. Gary Motley is builder of Hound Dog, an Aero V powered tail dragger Sonics. He's a longtime pilot, a former CFI, and a multi time airplane builder. I don't know, Gary, with your new engine swap, are you counting that as another one or maybe just a, a tweak on a, on a previous build? I kind of think it's like shoot downs during World War II ought to get at least a half a credit on one of those. Okay, well, I, that's that's fair. I can buy that. So a multi-time and a half airplane builder. Yes, there we go. <laughs> How's it going? I know you've been flying the heck out of it. Uh, it's running sweet. Uh, I'm real pleased. CHTs are like 250 and less. It's just really, really, really nice. It's just been humming right along. So a real confidence booster. And for everybody who's not uh, spun up, Gary pulled out his old engine and his new project and put in a UL Power uh, 130. And, um, you know, we're all intrigued by UL Power. Gary actually stepped up and took the plunge. And so I guess pretty soon you're going to have some really good hard data about operating that engine. Yeah, I think so. I'm still tweaking a few things, still trying to get my fuel flow calibrated and so forth. But uh, it's looking really good. I think it's going to be a pleasure to find fly behind. And I'm planning to go out to Oshkosh with it this year, too. Yeah, that's great. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I've told this story before, but I was really intrigued by the UL Power engines and, and came very close to buying one for my Sonics. So now that they're starting to kind of find their way into the field, we're going to find out if that was a mistake, passing up the UL Power or uh, or not. So. <laughs> no, but I think, it, I think it's going to work out. We'll see. All right. Well, good. Also here is John Gillis. John is best known for his custom touches, including his speed cowl, his tilt back canopy, and his toe brake mod. So, John, uh, you've been flying recently? Um, doing a lot of glider flying. Not too much Sonics. A little bit. I'll take it out for 15 minutes, but that's just to keep the oil, uh, keep the water out of the oil. Well, at least you're getting it in when you can. But, uh, you know, if you ignore it for too long, it's going to get a little grumpy at you. Well, it nags at me because uh, every time I walk past it in the hangar, it's like, you know, you got to take me out. Yeah, well, you're going to be, uh, you know, ready for the long cross country to Oshkosh here pretty quick. Yeah, I was, uh, I was talking to my wife today. I said, what are your plans for Oshkosh? And I said, well, I'm going to go, but I don't know if, how long I'm going to stay. Uh, but I'll definitely head out for a couple of days. All right, well, good. So, and joining us as our guest tonight is Jason Flint. Jason is builder of Sonics 1655. That's a tail dragger Sonics powered by a Corvair conversion that he assembled using William Wynn parts and manuals. Jason's a relatively new sport pilot. He started his training in 2012 and just hammered it out in less than six months and got the itch to build. And so in 2013, he started his Sonics project, finished it four years later in 2017. And in just in the last year, he's put 100 hours on it and brings him up to around 300 hours of total time. So Jason, thanks for coming on and, and talking Corvair with us. Sure, you bet. Happy to be here. So I guess, you know, the first thought that comes to mind is as a sport pilot, going from a Skycatcher to a Sonics, to me, seems like going from a 
a Ford Taurus or, or maybe a Holden Apollo for our Aussie friends to, uh, to like a Chevy Camaro. So how is that transition jumping into the Sonics? I think it helped that I had about three years there. I wasn't flying anything, so I, I had enough time to maybe forget any bad habits that I had. I, I will say, uh, you know, I loved flying every airplane I've ever had the chance to fly, so I won't sit here and bash the Skycatcher. I did start in the Gobosh, and that was a pretty sporty little plane. Uh, took a few years off uh, as I was building the Sonics, and then when I started getting back into it, I actually then went into a, a champ up here at the uh, Osceola Airport just to get my tail tailwheel rating and that one uh it, it was kind of like learning all over again but it came back real quick so once i got into the sonics and maybe this just gets real briefly into my transition training i did uh, uh got myself refreshed in the champ i got a little bit of right seat time with the guy uh, who has a sonics down here at the uh, air lake airport and then did uh, uh an afternoon in an rv12 out in wisconsin something with real similar uh uh, uh empty weight, you know, low wing, of course. So I felt pretty good when it was time to go. But yeah, it's a totally different bird than <laughs> than the Skycatcher or really anything else that I've flown before. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and we've talked about flying characteristics and things in the past. The Sonics just really kind of spoils you. It, it's nimble, it's responsive, it's effortless to fly. I find that I, I just, I really enjoy the handling and when I get in something else, I got to kind of remind myself, oh, yeah, this is what it's like flying other airplanes where you got to kind of work at it a little more. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be coming up to my biennial here in August, and uh, it may be interesting right now. I'm planning to go back to the champ just to knock that out. And it'll be interesting, interesting to see after having put, you know, at this point, 100 hours or just about 100 hours. At that point, it'll probably be closer to 110, 120. It'll be interesting to see how the transition, at least for a short time, back to a different bird feels. Well, cool. Before we uh, get into our Corvair main topic, let's hit a couple of news items. So first up, you guys have probably seen this. The Subsonics has been in the news recently. So there's a couple of things that come to mind. First off, Sonics had a press release talking about ramping up production of their latest batch of, of Subsonics kits. And this goes back to a comment that Mark made at Sun and Fun about that they were getting strong interest in the Subsonics and they were going to have to do something to start building these kits and satisfying the order backlog. So it sounds like they have done that and they're ramping up and and the, the kind of the tone of it was, hey, we're we're in full swing and if you want one, you better get in on it while we're while we're swinging. So that's really good to see. Um, I don't know what their total Subsonics kit count is, but um, it's been steadily creeping up at, at Sun and Fun. They were up to, I think he, I think Mark said 17 and they had sold one right before Sun and Fun. So they, they've got to be just adding them to the books. The second thing that I saw was Subsonics is going to be racing at Reno. And they, they had a release about they were doing the pylon school. And then the pilot, he is going to be delivering a seminar talk about racing the Subsonics in Reno. And, and he's going to give that talk this weekend, June 30th in Park City, Utah. So that's going to be kind of interesting, and hopefully that will spur some people in to start considering maybe a new class of race at Reno. I think that'd be really cool. Well, Jeff, what what exactly are they racing against, or is this just more of an exhibition flight? That's a really good question. I I tried to find what, they, what class they were going to be operating in, and I don't know what it is. It's got to be like an open class where they handicap the aircraft or something. The results really mean nothing, but it's a good time for everybody. Yeah, and they were not real specific about exactly what they did and what kind of speeds they were seeing. But um, 
you know, they've done this type of thing with other classes where they get some interest and they'll get a field of maybe three or four or six competitors and, and they'll race and, and form a new class. Wouldn't that be cool to have a subsonics class in their jet races? I think that'd be cool. Well, and then uh, we have joked about this in the past, about forming the Colorado Springs Subsonics Flying Club. But, uh, you know, the more I think about it, the more I, I think that this is not so much a pipe dream as it first sounds. I think that there is a business case that can be laid out where you really could get a flying club organized around a Subsonics, bring in some people with a very reasonable investment, outline an operating agreement on how the plane's going to be used and, and what people's responsibilities are, Outline the training and insurance requirements, and they're all very capable. You know, average pilots like us can can meet those requirements. And this would be a way for a fraction of the cost to get in and start flying a jet. So I'm going to do some more research, and I'll just leave it as an open invitation. If anybody is interested in getting in on the Subsonics Flying Club, they can send me an email and uh, let me know that they're interested, and and we'll start talking about this over the next uh, few months. Well, you know, Jeff... um my uh, my soaring club is doing almost the exact same thing with a duo discus, um, you know, a high performance uh, two place cross country soaring ship. I mean, these things are a hundred thousand dollars. They're about as much as a, a subsonics, and we're talking about creating a syndicate of at least ten owners to get into it to make it reasonable for a normal human to to engage in this and. Uh, so it's it's not unreasonable to do something like that for something really a really uh, unique like a subsonics or a duo discus. Yeah, and that is really the model that I am looking to. I know AOPA has several resources for starting flying clubs and doing financing of either partnerships or flying club airplanes. It's really about finding a core group who say, "Yeah, I really am kind of interested in this. Let's let's uh, sit down and really start talking some details." I did some very preliminary numbers that I ran, and my conclusion was that with a handful of builders coming together, like you say, as a syndicate, the price falls into what I consider an affordable range, and the the price of operation is not as bad as you might think it is, you know, even including fuel and, and uh, all the normal operational costs. So I think there's something there. I'm going to keep pulling these threads. I'm going to keep working with interested people, and we'll see where this goes. So more to follow if you're interested, and I mean that in a in a serious way. If you're interested and you think this might be something you'd like to hear more about, send an email. You can send it to the feedback at sonicsflight.com email address. Just let me know. Uh, or if you think it's um, a crazy idea, then uh, then don't send me an email. <laughs> All right, so the last topic before we move in is uh, AirVenture is coming up. Uh, we're only about a month out now, and uh, it's time to start finalizing some travel plans. So for me, uh, Isaac and I are planning on leaving Kansas City on Saturday, and we'll arrive there at the campground and, and start staking out land for Camp Sonics. Uh, if we have weather problems, we might get delayed until Sunday. But the goal is to be in place and have all that staked out before the uh, sea of RVs push into our space and try to take it from us. I've already gotten emails from, I don't know, half a dozen people who are planning on coming in and would like space enough for them to, to park there. So if you have already sent me an email, that's great. I got you. If you haven't and you want space, send me an email and we'll make sure we, we get a big enough plot to, to hold everybody. There ought to be some really interesting um, stuff this year. The, I think it's going to be a, a great banner year for, um, for AirVenture and for EA itself. 
But for Sonics, you know, this is their 20th anniversary, so there ought to be a pretty lively homecoming party and, and the Wednesday party over at Wayne's to, to watch the night air show. That'll be good as usual. And then uh, at Camp Sonics, uh, we're going to we're gonna fit in a podcast. And I don't know exactly when we're going to do this. Possibly Tuesday. Maybe we'll do it Thursday, depending on our travel plans. But we are definitely going to record a podcast from the campground. And we'll just kind of talk about what we're seeing and and roll in some of the highlights um, and some of the Sonic-specific highlights as well. So if you are in the area and you want to be part of that podcast, an open invitation to come on over and join us. And lastly, uh, Isaac will be presenting a, another forum similar to what he did at Sun and Fun. He's going to be talking about his experience with his Sonics project. The title of it is Building a Home Built as a Teenager, and uh, he's just going to talk about his experience. So that'll be Wednesday at 2.30 at the Home Builders Hangar. So if you're in the area, come by and support Isaac and hear him talk about his project. So there's my, my quick list. What are you guys planning on doing? Well, I'm going to bug out really early Saturday morning, too, and try to get there uh... Really early, and certainly much before uh, John Gillis ever makes it there in his little slow air, his little slow Sonics. So now, now, Gary, I would I would fly with you, but I cannot fly my Sonics as slow as you fly. So um, I'm going to give you a day or two head start, and then we'll land. We'll we'll go into the into the pattern together. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Just talking as the new guy, too, I'm planning to head out there. This will be the first time heading out by air, and uh, I'm one of those guys that they email in for Camp Sonics. I'm hoping to head out Friday, actually, before the show. So looking forward to seeing everybody out there. Now, I have a question for um, for Jeff. So we, we're establishing Camp Sonics. I, I was there last year. It was really cool. How do we indicate to the ground crew that we want to go to Camp Sonics and they don't send us off to uh, – Long Easy Land or RV Land or someplace out into the boondocks. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess we're going to have to talk with some folks that have worked ground crew and try to figure out the best way to do that. I know I know where to go, and I, I will violate once I get off of the, uh, the Warbird um, taxiway. I'll just go where I want to go, but... Um, you know, they're, they're going to have some guy in front of me with a scooter that's going to be waving his arms and saying, no, don't go that way. Yeah, we'll work on that problem. All right. I guess maybe the this is not a great answer, but initially, if you um, if you go to the Sonics show plane camp camping right by the booth and you park there and then you come find Camp Sonics uh, on foot and then you can probably work it out moving the plane from the just the parking area over to Camp Sonics as a second movement. So if anybody has any problems, that they can always do that and and then work it out with the flagman directly. But we'll have a good solution, and we'll talk about it before before it's time to go. Yeah, that's an excellent solution. Now the qu- the second question though, do we let Gary bring in that zenith? Well, I think uh, I think we can probably make allowances for strong supporters of the Sonics community. Okay. Because it's a beautiful airplane, but, you know, it is a Zenith. Yes, but just remember it has built-in sunshades with those wings that you don't have. And you could park over mine to protect me, at least half of my plane, from uh, hail damage. (laughs) See, I have uses. (laughs) All right. Well, good deal, guys. Um, Let's jump right into this. And I'm going to turn this over to you, Jason. And why don't you just start us off 
by uh, just give us a little bit of your background. I know we covered some of this in the introduction, but just set it up, you know, where you're coming from, transitioning into the Sonics, and then the thinking and decision making that led you to a Corvair. So that's where I want to end up on on your background. So with that, tell us about your your background coming into Sonics. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Uh, and, and you did, you hit the, the big highlights. I went through the training in 2012 and like a lot of folks, I quickly realized that renting is the sure way to bankruptcy. Uh, but I love it to death. So I need to figure out a way, you know, to afford to get in the air and you can look at used airplanes and, you know, you can get them for a reasonable deal, but there's the cost associated with that. You know, I want a new plane. I want a cool airplane. So I'm looking around at different kit aircraft. I'd had experience with the Gobosh, which, like I said, is a pretty sporty airplane. And uh, the Skycatcher gets you in the air, and it's cool, and it's fun. But, uh, uh, you know, looking around at what was available, what was uh, sport pilot eligible, you really, for me, it was down to the Sonics and the Zenith, at, uh, you know, the 650. And uh, I don't know, it's just something about the Sonics that really spoke to me. It's close. You know, I live in on the, the east side of the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. So, uh, you know, heading out to the factory to check things out or do the builder's workshop was really easy access for me to get to. So, um, you know, I decided to go with the Sonics and uh, I went out to the builder's workshop in October of 2013. And that was real cool. They did a real good job, you know, getting a sense of, of how to build these things. Uh, in a lot of cases, that was my first experience with the various tools and methods that I'd ever had, uh, you know, working with metal. And I think they did a good job of introducing that stuff. Uh, I also had the chance out there, they had just started the Discovery Flight and the T-Flight, the, the transition training out there. And so I got a half hour with uh, Joe up in the, the uh, sport trainer. And, you know, it was him and me, and I think that one had the 80-horse V, and that was cool. Uh, you know, it got us up in the air. It got us around, and I just remember coming back raving, thinking this thing is a sports car. Uh, you know, he had me do a 360-degree turn, and in the Skycatcher, that's about, a, you know, a 30, 45-second maneuver. And in the Sonics, not, not so much. So uh, yeah, I was really excited after that, and that really kind of sealed the deal. And I, I bought uh, the, the – I went the subkit route uh, – my workshop here in the house uh, was in the basement. It's uh, 11 feet by 13 feet. And so everything that I built had to be able to be built in that small of an area. And then they had to be able to be moved and stored around the house. I didn't really have anywhere to store boxes and boxes of parts. So I spent you know several years building pieces and driving back out to Oshkosh. I'd rent a U-Haul trailer and drive back out there and pick up the next big piece and drive back and, and put it together. Uh, somewhere along the line, you need to decide what engine to put on the front. And for me, uh, you know, just kind of reflecting back how it happened, it, it kind of happened pretty quickly. Uh, you know, I, back before I started building, I had a lot of time on my hands and I had internet access. And so, you know, you're reading about Sonics and all different kinds of experimentals and what kind of engines they have on it. And eventually you're going to run into something other than the Aero V and the Jabiru. Uh, and, you know, I'd read about the Corvair and it, it, it sounded cool. It sounded like a good power plant. You know, I'd read about Dan Waysman and the success that he had had, uh, and the people that had flown that combination really love it. Uh, but at the time I was, I was still renting the Skycatcher. This would have been mid 2014 and, uh, uh, I don't know if this is coincidental or what, but uh, just out of the blue, the place that I was renting from at the St. Paul downtown airport, 
they decided to close their flight school, which was also their rental center. And so I was out of an LSA or there may have been one LSA in the area, but it was even further away from a Sonics than the Skycatcher was. I think it was, is, uh, is a Pipistro, which is almost like a, a motor glider for kind of loud. Uh, so I figured in that moment, you know, because I'd been thinking, what's the fastest way into the air? I'll go with the tri-gear. I'll probably go with the VW derivative. But once it became clear to me that I wasn't going to be flying for a while, uh, I decided that I was going to sink my money into the build instead of renting and really kind of kick this thing out. That's when I, it occurred to me, you know, I really do want to build a tail drag. I've never flown one, but they look cool. Everybody says the Sonics is real easy, and it is uh, a flying tail dragger. So I figured, you know, I'm just going to go that route. And uh, I, I would not consider a Corvair with the nose gear. I know a couple guys have, but I personally wouldn't. Uh, but uh, that kind of everything just fell into place. I just decided, well, I'm going to build the tail dragger. And you know what? I'm going to I'm going to go for the Corvair. Uh, I couldn't afford the, the Jabiru. Maybe I could have afforded a used one, but didn't really look in that direction. And I was looking for something more than 80 horses. Uh, and that one just really seemed to kind of fit the bill. So that's how I landed uh, uh, deciding on the Corvair. Okay. Well, good. Well, I, I think the name alone is, is worthwhile using Corvair. It even just sounds like an aircraft. Didn't <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, I do get compliments out at the airfield. I can't tell you how many times people come around and they say that little thing has a bark to it. You know, they say it's got a, a nice mix, but, you know, everybody says every engine sounds like a warbird, but what I hear most often with this engine, engine is they say, man, you just sound like a race car pulling up. And that's pretty cool. Okay. Well, I want to just, um, I want to preface what we're going to talk about with just maybe a, a general caution with any non-standard, non-approved engine builders ought to just, they ought to do their homework. They ought to carefully consider what they're going to do. And, and this is not directed at any specific engine. It's just a realization that if you as the builder are going to get off of the path that Sonics provides, there is some additional work and perhaps some additional risk that you have to, to be okay with. So don't make the decision lightly. And then that leads me into kind of my second caution, which is be careful who you listen to. Some of these engines out there have a good body of, of information on how to put them on, how to how to do a successful installation, um, even how to build up that particular engine from parts that are available. Be careful who you get your advice from because there are plenty of examples of internet gurus that uh, they, they talk loudly and they seem like they are authorities, but they're really not. And uh, do your due diligence, find someone that has a track record, and they can talk from a position of experience, and don't be led astray by some of these loud personalities on the internet. Anyway, so there's my, there's my caution right there. The guy that does the Home Built Help video series, John Croak, actually, I think it was just last week or the year, or week before, did a segment on exactly this, how to choose your engine. And one of the things he suggested, and I think it's a great idea, is to try to find at least three people who are flying the engine in the airframe that you want to use it on and speak to them directly about their experiences and what might be the challenges. Yeah, I think that's a great um, a great advice. And Gary, if you send me that link, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, I'll do that. Okay. Let's start off, Jason, with just tell us about your engine itself, and then we'll get into some of the other things. But um, give us the specs, the details, you know, whose plans you used, all that kind of stuff. Sure, you bet. Uh, you know, I went with the uh, the roadmap that's laid out by William Wynn, 
uh, when I made the decision to go with the Corvair, this was the summer of 2014, it was just before Oshkosh. And uh, I ordered the manual and the, the, the current manual, the 2014 conversion manual had just come out. And so I got one of the first copies of, of that manual and that is the blueprint for, for what I have. Uh, I decided to go with the three liter uh, displacement, which William pegs as 120 horses. I know Dan Waysman uh, says that that engine puts out about 115. You know, it, it doesn't matter. They both got, you know, it has plenty of power either way depending on, on what number you tag to it. Uh, there's, there's really, there's a lot of information that uh, William has put together over the years, as well as other builders that he's worked with. There's uh, uh, a, a Zenith installation manual, which is really very detailed. And uh, uh, I followed that, uh, gave me a lot of good information. Uh, uh, back before, well, I would say back in 2014, 15, and even 16, when I was actively putting it together, uh, one of the main references is the uh, GM 1965 Corvair shop manual, which you know still has uh, a lot of the relevant information. So uh, I have my copy here in front of me. It's you know covered in grease, but it served its job. Uh, one thing that I, I wish I had back at the time, and I've had occasion to use it here a little bit recently, is the uh, Corvair engine assembly manual that uh, uh, Dan Waysman, SPA, uh, has put out and it's uh, beautifully illustrated. I mean, just photographs on top of photographs of exactly what you do from the case halves right on up to the completed engine. Uh, so, you know, that's real helpful for the engine itself. Okay. Yeah. And um, I do not have uh, any of these conversion manuals. So forgive me if I'm asking silly questions here. Sure. Does he lay out a, a, a range of options with general guidance to get you to a finished product? Or is it a very specific, like you have exactly this part and you do exactly this to it? Uh, with the, 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 the assembly manual, the, the one from Dan Weisman, it, it calls out parts, uh, which is excellent. And even William Wynn's manual, the 2014 conversion manual, he will say, uh, you know, when you have to go uh, to, you know, get a part from Napa or you're ordering from Summit or you're ordering from Clark's Corvairs, which is a huge uh, Corvair parts uh, outlet, uh, you know, he'll have what the part number is right there in the conversion manual. So there's not a whole lot of digging around trying to figure out what part do I need. It's called out. Uh, some of them now might be a few years old. And so, you know, and it's been a while since I've been went out assembling a lot of the parts. So some of the part numbers might be a little bit different. I do know that uh, uh, SPA, uh, which is uh, Sport Performance Aviation, Dan Waysman's outfit, uh, they, uh, in their uh, Corvair in a box option, they have all those parts assembled. Uh, it wasn't difficult to bring them all together when you had the part numbers, but it's even easier now, my understanding is, because they really package it all together. So I think they do a really good job. There's, I mean, if, if, if I can figure it out, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, if a dummy like me can figure it out, anybody can do it. But in this case, it's really true. I mean, there wasn't very much detective work going on as far as pulling parts together. So that, that was really easy. Okay. And things like the crank and the fifth bearing, what did you do for that? Oh, yeah. Uh, the crankshaft, I went all out. I, that's where I decided if I was going to spare no expense, I was going to get the good crankshaft. Uh, SPA, they produce their steel billet crankshaft, and it's a thing of beauty. Uh, <laughs> uh, I went with that right off the bat. I, I 
you know, there, there are stories out there. If people Google it, you know, going back, you know, several years of, of crankshaft failures, uh, part of the, the, the rigmarole to kind of correct that was adding a fifth bearing on the front of the engine and the, the overwhelming popular one these days, at least for the William Wynn conversion, is Dan Weisman's uh, fifth bearing, which uh, went on pretty easily. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, nitriding and magnifluxing your crankshaft to make sure it's okay. Most folks flying Corvairs use reconditioned, you know, GM original cranks. But I just wanted that extra little peace of mind, so I shelled out the bucks to get the fancy one, and uh, I'm glad I did. What do you think the parts cost difference is between salvaging usable components and then going all out, like, with the, 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 the custom crank and the fifth bearing? Yeah, I just uh, actually went in earlier today just to kind of look that up because, uh, you know, I wanted to see compared to when I purchased things, what the difference is now. And this was just a, a real quick glance. And this was looking at uh, what I believe was the Corvair in a box pricing. The, the price difference between the, the reconditioned crank and the new one is 1500 bucks. you know, which is, you know, that's a fair chunk of change. That's your ADSB out. But uh like I said, I thought it was worth it just to have that extra little little piece of mind, and so I went in that direction. Okay. Were there any other options where, you know, you had a choice to make? Yeah, not a whole lot. Uh, one of them that I did go with is the uh, rear-mounted alternator. Uh, if you go with the classic William Wynn design, it's mounted up front uh, on the passenger side, right inside the air inlet, and it's run by a pulley off of the prop hub. Uh, whereas uh, uh, Dan had developed one that installs right on the back, basically it plugs into the harmonic balancer. And there's a bracket back there that it attaches to. I just thought it looked like a little bit of a cleaner install. It fits, it's, it's tight squeeze between the back of the engine and the, the Sonics firewall. The geometry is kind of tight, especially towards the top. But I decided to go with the rear mount just because it looks cleaner. Uh, I like the idea of not having to have a belt in there that might go bad on you. Not that I, you know, not that I've heard any horror stories of that happening, but uh, so that's an option that, uh, you know, Dan Weisman does provide the rear uh, if you want it. It's the same alternator, whether you mount it on the front or on the back and through Fly Corvair, which is William Wins, he has all the hardware you need to mount it on the front. So that's an option that you can exercise. Uh, by choosing to put it on a Sonics airframe, you're, you're stuck with, uh, uh, having the uh, uh, reverse oil filter uh, uh, adapter. Uh, on most Corvair engines, you'll see uh, the oil filter uh, facing towards the rear of the engine, but because you have the, the filler neck sticking out uh, front of the fuel tank, the oil filter has to stick back out over the front of the engine. And that's, it works fine. Probably one of the Achilles heels just from a, cleanliness standpoint is you know you're always losing a little bit of oil around the rag anytime you take the filter off and that slowly drips down you know over the next couple of hours and so you're kind of sopping things up a little bit and it takes you know two or three hours to kind of clear out uh it's just a minor thing but you have to do it that way just because of the geometry of the uh, corvair made it to the sonics John, you have a conversion manual, and you've been threatening to build up a Corvair. What what do you? What's your opinion of the the completeness of the conversion manual? Oh, the complete conversion manual is great. Yeah, I had actually bought for my Pete and Paul project. A uh, I bought the manual, and then I went to the seminar, and then I uh, I started. I bought a um, a, a 
you know, a core, you know, out of a wreck. And I quickly became apparent that I'm going to spend at least $10,000 provisioning this engine um, with all the rework and all the, uh, the, the additional components that it was not a, a, a viable, um, not where I wanted to go. So I, I sold the core actually for more than what I paid for it. I still have the manual and I, I have no problem with the Corvair engine. I just, I'm not quite sure that the value is there. Yeah. And this is my opinion and this just take it for, for one person's opinion. If you are looking for a Corvair as a low-cost engine alternative, uh, if you build a low-cost Corvair, you may very well be disappointed with your end result. But if you go into it and you build the best engine you can build using the latest configurations and parts and the ones that have the best track record and chance of success, you're going to have what is very likely going to be a good engine, but it's not necessarily going to be a cheap engine. Yeah, and I'll say for my part, you know, I don't have experience with other engines here than my own. And and with the, the three liter engine, you know, it requires some different parts. And like I said, I, I did shell out for the, uh, the billet crankshaft and I'm glad I did. And yeah, I, you know, I wasn't trying to do it on the cheap. Actually, I figured uh, any part of the airplane build, if I was really going to sink some money into it, I, I wanted it to be the engine. But at the same time, it, it, it is cheaper, or at least it was when I built it. Uh, and I think it still is. It, it is cheaper than a new 120 horse Jabiru. And so, uh, you know, that was part of what played into it. And I, I did like the idea of being able to put it together myself and maintain it, uh, you know, and now looking back, uh, having built it up and I, I, I had the chance to go to the Corvair college they had at the Zenith factory, uh, back in 2015 and started the assembly there. And, uh, now looking back, having put this thing together literally from the bare case halves on up. Uh, you know, I feel real comfortable if, if something goes wrong or I have to dig in there. I have no trepidation about that at all. Well, and I do believe that that's a huge, huge benefit of building your own engine. You know, you go buy a Jabiru, you're going to spend close to 20 grand right now yep. for a, a Gen 4. Um, you're going to probably spend, I don't know, somewhere between 10 to 15,000 um, to properly equip a, ja- uh, a, a Corvair, but you do have the, uh, you know, the, the benefit of you built this engine, you know exactly what it's done and you know exactly where it's going to go. Yep. So I, I actually have no problem with the Corvair. It's just at that point, you know, it's four, four or $5,000 more to get a, um, a factory aircraft engine. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough call. So, Jason, what in twenty fifteen dollars? What do you figure your all up engine cost was, and not not accessories and all the other stuff, just the engine itself? Yeah, just the engine itself. It, it was probably a little north of ten thousand. Uh, uh, you know, if if I try to take off the accessories, I think that's a fair price. I, I know at the time the the, the literature that uh, William was distributing said that you could get a fully assembled three point zero without the billet crank. Uh, for I think it was around eight thousand bucks, and like I said, I shelled out for the, uh, the 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 billet crank and did the assembly myself. So I think ten is a, is a pretty fair estimate, maybe a little bit over that. Whereas these days, yeah, I think you're in the neighborhood of twelve to fifteen, depending on how you know how far out there you want to go. So like anything, over time things go up a little bit, but uh, you know it's 
you know, you look at it for what do you want to get out of the experience too? You know, do you want to be the builder and the maintainer of it? Uh, do you want to just get something that's ready to go and you bolt it on and fly? And that's cool. That's why I think it's great that we have all the options that we do. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the price range that you'll see if you go to um, S- Fly SBA and uh, yep. look at Dan Wiesman's Corvair in a box. It's going to be in that same 12, 15, maybe even a little bit more price range, somewhere for his complete in a box, ready to go, ready to build. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay. Let's talk about what is required to mate a Corvair onto a Sonics. First thing you need is you need an engine mount. And uh, uh, I will say, you know, for, for anybody that decides to go the Corvair route, we do have a tremendous resource in Dan Wiesman. He does uh, uh, stock and sell uh, a lot of the parts that you need to mate the Corvair onto the Sonics airframe specifically, or YX as well. From the, the from what I've gathered is neither he nor William are really outrageous about pushing it, you know, out of deference to Sonics and the Monettes. Uh, and I respect that, but uh, also understanding that there are people out there that are gonna wanna put this combination together. So they, they do stock the parts. And so you need things like the, 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 the engine mount, which I bought from them and, uh, I'm the kind of guy, I have no experience with welding or the quality of the welding, but the folks that do that have come out into the air to look at it, just go gaga over the, the quality of the welding of the, uh, the motor mount. They say it's really fantastic and uh, it's held so far and it looks real good. There's other things, you know, uh, they also sell the, the nose bowl. Uh, you know, uh, I also, I believe, have the speed cowl on, on uh, my aircraft and the flip top canopy and the tow brakes. He also, you can buy, you could buy from any prop maker, but they, you can order the sensitive prop to go with the Corvair through SPA as well. They also have uh, a baffle kit, which is real helpful. And that thing of, of everything that I purchased from them probably took the more work than anything else. Uh, the, there was, it was a little funky around how you're supposed to mount the oil cooler off to the, the rear of the engine on the pilot side, but I made it work. Uh, you know, everything, everything worked out fine there. So a lot of that basic stuff that you need that, you know, might scare some folks about having to try to fabricate your own motor mount, having to try to, you know, do your own fiberglass nose bowl. Uh, uh, you know, the uh, baffling, by the time you've built an airframe, that shouldn't be too daunting, but it is nice when you get to that point in the build too, where if you have the option just to buy it, you can. And baffling is always a little fidgety anyway, no matter no matter whose baffle kit you get. So that's that's kind of a standard across a, a, a lot of different airplanes. And that's good to hear because it was fidgety for me too, but, you know, we, we worked it out eventually. So that was that was pretty good. Yeah. Now the the engine mount. Uh, how did that fit up? Did did it just plug right in perfectly, or did you have to do anything to it? It fit. All I had to do was make two really thin little shims where they attach to the bottom of the airframe on top. It was a perfect fit. I mean, I couldn't have been happier. I I uh, cut out and polished up those shims in less than an hour, and I had it hanging off of my airplane the afternoon I got it. Okay. And is it powder coated or painted, or do you have to do that? Powder coated. So it, it's basically delivered, ready to bolt on, and it bolted up perfect. Exactly. It was really nice. Good. Yeah. And then uh, for those not familiar with the Corvair nose bowl and the and the speed cowl, describe that process of fabricating the cowl. Uh, it, it was it was a process. Uh, uh, the not so much the the uh, 
the fiberglass, uh, the, the front of the nose bowl, you know, there's instructions uh, uh, in the, the manual, especially, I believe most of that came from the Zenith installation manual. Uh, but it, you know, it applies to the, the Sonics as well about how do you actually attach this thing to the prop hub. And then you kind of have to fabricate the aluminum uh, panels that go from the, the rear of this fiberglass uh, nose bolt piece back to the fuselage. And that part took a bit of work. Uh, there's no instructions out there. Uh, that's a part where you really have to uh, do some research, uh, internet research, look for build logs. Uh, I found with a lot of the work, not just the cowl, but uh, also for accessories and, and, and where to put things on the firewall, uh, some of those Zenith builder logs, the 601s and 650s, other than the, 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 you know, the geometry of the firewall itself, a lot of it's uh, applicable. Uh, Amit Ganju uh, took his site down, but he had a lot of really great pictures on there. And I was lucky enough to be building when that website was still online. So. Uh, you know, you're looking for pictures, a picture's worth a thousand words, and that's the truth. Uh, and, you, you, you know, you have to make uh, uh, six different panels, uh, actually five different panels, one that goes straight back from the top of the nose bowl back up to the, the, the front of the windshield. And then you've got four panels going around the sides. You have the upper panels that flip up for pretty good access to the entire engine whenever you're doing a pre-flight. And then bottom panels that attach to, uh, at the end of the day, wherever your intake and your outflow uh, opening is going to be. And what I did is I just took uh, uh, pieces of heavy uh, a poster board and started just sketching things out and holding it up against the airplane, sketching it out and keep. Uh, uh, trimming and trimming until I was pretty close with the poster boards. And then I transferred that to aluminum and uh, it was a lot of work, but I knocked that out in one weekend. Uh, so again, that, that's where the, the, the relying on the assistance of online build logs and pictures was really helpful. All right. Well, what about other accessories uh, for, to complete your firewall forward installation? You talked about your oil cooler. I guess that part yep. is spec right out of the conversion manual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's from Aircraft Spruce. You know, some in, in the Sonics airframe, they say you can use an original, I think it's the 12-plate oil cooler from, from a, an original Corvair. I, I, you know, why bother? Just get a new clean one. It, it bolts up just the same, uh, same place, and so that works well. Uh, you know, other than that, you know, I got an air oil separator that just happens to fit in there between the engine and the firewall because it gets to be a real tight fit up there at the top. That's on the pilot side. Uh, otherwise, over on the passenger side is where I have a lot of my ignition components. I got a, a coil switch. It's got a couple of Bosch coils for the ignition. Uh, the, uh, the one that I have is uh, pretty much the standard uh, uh, distributor uh, system that William sells right now. It's electronic on one side and points on the other. So you have two coils, uh, you know, one for the electronic and one for the, the coils as backup. And that mounts up. Uh, usually on the passenger side and uh, only because that's how I've only ever seen it in other Sonics's. And so I didn't question, you know, why did they put it there? I just, Oh, people put it there and it works. It fits. And so I followed suit uh, in mine uh, because I have the, uh, I have the Marvel Shebler, the MA three SPA carb. Uh, so, uh, so with that, I do have the gas uh down below uh, then running back up to the MA3 carb. 
uh, which has been no problem. Real happy with that. And because you have the ME3 carb, you do need a carb heat provision. So, you know, I've got the little, uh, it's a tiny little <laughs> heat muff over on the side because there's not a whole lot of room in that cowl. Uh, but I folded it up and, and uh, clamped on a bunch of little uh, uh, stainless steel uh, uh, little straps that go around it that I cut and bent in different shapes just to slow down some of that air and transfer some of the heat. And uh, so you do have ram air intake with you, you pull the, pull the knob and you get your carb heat as well. And that's important for the, uh, for the Corvair with the MA3, uh, you know, by, I haven't experienced it myself. I don't think so, but I know William talks about it a lot in his manuals that you really do need to use it as anti-ice because uh, this does have a tendency to ice up when you're below 75%. And I believe I, I, I haven't seen the final report on it, but uh, uh, Amit Ganju's airplane, uh, he sold it to a guy who on his return flight, this guy was taking it, uh, I believe it's from Maryland or somewhere out there. He's flying it back to the West Coast, ended up turning around due to weather and came back. And it sounds like it just kind of lost power and mushed out of the sky just shortly before returning back to the airport. And it sounded like carb, you know, like carb ice was a problem and the guy hadn't applied carb ice. So, you know, that's an important consideration uh, uh, to make as well. And that's some added complexity. But actually in the in the, the plans, at least the Sonics plans that I have, there is uh, a page that shows how to make a, a carb heat box with the little flapper door that can go between intake air you know, from one of two directions. And I use that with a little bit of, again, relying on other builders' uh, websites and pictures about how to kind of mate that to the bottom of the, the carburetor. And that worked well. And then I also use uh, a Canon filter uh, in mine just because it fits and it matches the displacement of the engine. It's the DU0202, which isn't called out anywhere else. That's just my experience. Uh, it fits right in that little intake carb heat box and so both ram air and carb heat are, are filtered going into the carb and other than that you know you're just running your your wires for your sensors and i have a, a an analog uh, oil pressure so i've got the little uh the thin little copper tube that runs through the firewall back to the the gauge and your throttle and mixture and carb heat cables uh that's pretty much it it's a pretty clean install there's not a whole lot of complexity to it Jason? Yes. What kind of fuel do you use? Uh, 100 low lead exclusively uh, because that's what's available at my airport. And uh, I don't know if it's different anywhere else, but where I live, there's really nobody that sells uh, unleaded 93 octane. And uh, from Dan Weisman's point, he says that's the minimum unleaded fuel that you would use. Uh, I, you know, it, it's easy to get it's uh it's plentiful and it gives you that extra little resistance against detonation so i'm pretty happy what, with it. what is your compression ratio you know what i'm not sure i didn't you know i didn't uh, measure that before i put the heads on uh i suppose you know i'd have to go back to the, the manuals to see how they usually call it out uh, i'm not sure hmm. well uh tell us about the all-up weight that you estimate that the engine uh, engine, firewall, forward, mount, you know, that the normal stuff? That's a good question. Uh, I didn't weigh all that stuff separately. Uh, you know, I suppose the big upshot, people are going to ask, how much does the airplane weigh with the Corvair on the front? An empty weight of mine is 751. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, the information supplied by William, they estimate the, 
the 3.0 liter, the, just the engine itself ready to fly is, I think it's in the neighborhood of 215, 218, something like that. Uh, you know, there's, there's places behind the firewall that I did not skimp on weight. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not an albatross, but it's, it's, you know, there's some places where I, I took some liberties. So I would buy, you know, what most people say, if you're talking in the 220, 225 range, that's probably about right. Okay. So with an empty weight of 750, what does your weight and balance look like? Yeah, the weight and balance is, I'm actually pretty happy with it. Now, what I did to, to compensate for, first of all, uh, in my POH and in the information that I submitted to the FAA to get the certification, uh, I can get to full forward CG with just me alone, uh, a very full tank of gas. And I think it's five or six pounds in baggage and that's it. I'll be at, 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 at the forward limit. Uh, there is no reasonable loading uh, scenario that will take me out of rear CG. Uh, actually, here, I got my POH, which uh, uh, I stole off of you, Jeff, which is it's a really great resource. 68.6 uh, is my most AF CG. That's me, a 230-pound passenger, no gas, and 25 pounds of baggage. So, you know, you still got a couple of inches to the rear. Uh, so I'm pretty happy with that. Uh, you know, I'm, I've flown it now for 100 hours. I'm comfortable. Most of the time when I'm flying solo, it's a little bit nose heavy, but it's fine. It, it, it maneuvers great. It handles great. It flares fine. Uh, to compensate for it, though, I did have to put, I have the, the, the Odyssey battery in the back, and I think that's in the neighborhood of 15 pounds. And it's it's all the way back. It's as far back as you can go and still fit the battery. And of course, then there's the corresponding wiring that comes up and through the firewall. So that's that's the the CG. Okay, so with the battery in the tail, um, you are you're operating normally with a full tank of gas. You're operating normally at the front of your CG range, but you're still yep. within CG range. Oh yeah, yeah. But probably um, if you did not go through relocating the battery as far back as you could, you might have some some problems when it came to the forward CG. Oh, I believe so. Yeah. You know, you put that 15 pounds that far back, you know, and it, it has, it makes a real difference. So, and, you know, I'm a pretty light guy. I'm usually, you know, between 170, 175. So it's not like I add a whole lot of weight behind the center of gravity either. Uh, you know, there's some guy, I believe Dan Waysman, uh, when he was flying his plane, he had his battery just back behind him in the baggage area, or maybe just behind that. Uh, but, you know, he's known for flying with passengers all the time. That's what he likes to do, and that's cool. But I knew most of my flying is going to be solo, so I, I didn't waste any time. I just put the battery right in the back. Uh, it's It's been no problem. Yeah, and I'll just make a, a general comment at this point. Um, Sonics gives guidance on allowable firewall forward weight for, for the Sonics. Um, they list 200 pounds firewall forward. I'm not going to debate whether that's an appropriate number or not. I'm simply going to say that they give guidance, and if you operate outside of that, uh, you may not get a, uh, a a warm embrace from Sonics. They may they may uh, distance themselves because you're operating outside of their published guidance. I don't think that's necessarily wrong of them. If they haven't they haven't tested outside of their guidance, how can they give you an, a, an opinion? So you just need to be ready for that. My advice is consult your own references, make up your own mind, 
and then uh, just be prepared to live with your decision. You don't necessarily need to win everybody onto your side of thinking uh, in order to have a good airplane to go fly. So, and I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say for my part, you know, I understood that going in when I made that decision that that's Sonics's position. And, you know, I, there's no grudge or, or hard feelings on my part. That's their position. And, you know, that's, that's cool. That's, that's their state position. And I made a, 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 an informed decision to go outside of that. And there is support out there for people, you know, uh, uh, putting together an airplane for how to do that uh, firewall back, except for where the battery is located. It's, it's a Sonics airframe and uh, I, I love it to death, but yeah, that is something you do need to be aware of because if that's meaningful for you to have that, that, that factory dedication to the success of your build, you know, firewall back and forward, then, you know, that's something you need to take in, into consideration. Jason? Yes. Did you consider or do any calculations for derating the G loads because of the firewall weight? Uh, no, no, I, I didn't. Uh, the reason for that is really, well, first of all, I'm, you know, I'm not a big aerobatics guy. I've done some wing overs in mind, but I generally like to keep my head up. Uh, uh, and so I'm not, you know, worried about putting some additional stresses there. Uh, uh, just this is part of my decision process. And so I'm not saying anybody else should follow my thinking here, but when I went out to the factory for the builders workshop and many of you have been out there, probably seen that, that kind of uh, crumpled wing over on the wall there in the hornet's nest. And they, you know, they did the load testing up to, I think it yielded at 11 G uh, you know, which is, it, it inspires confidence. And I, I wouldn't recommend the operating airplane near that certainly but i think you know it just to kind of keep it in normal category uh uh geez you know plus what is it plus four point something uh you know certainly less for the minus g's uh i'm not concerned about that and you know we have the experience of dan waisman and his airplane and and people who have seen the videos of that and him just flying the snot out of it doing some pretty you know pretty you know serious aerobatics you know, that inspires some confidence as well. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's a well-built airplane. Everybody says it's a very stout airframe. I don't debate that. Uh, putting well, more weight I, I on the nose too. will stress it more. But at the same time, you know, it's we make our choices. Well, it just, I guess maybe for the sake of completeness, in Sonics' defense, if we look at the history of the, you know, service bulletins and all that, the original engine mounts that Sonics designed and sold uh, were later upgraded. They changed some of the, the wall thickness of the tubes, and they found that after some time in service, they noticed some cracking. Tony Spitzer was one of the first to notice this. Tony flew his aggressively all the time. If you've seen his video, uh, he's out there yanking and banking a lot. And he said that yeah. after 400 hours, he started to notice a few effects on the airplane, 400 hard hours on the airplane. Um, he he was the first to have that underseat channel that supported the seat back the the bottom hinge he's the mm -hmm. one that crumpled that thing from so many g-load cycles on it that it was starting to buckle and so they replaced that channel with a, a piece of eighth inch angle and he cracked his engine mount due to just repetitive g-loading on the airplane and so sonics took both of those and upgraded the plans accordingly um so my takeaway from that is really just kind of a cautionary tale my takeaway is Sonics didn't just arbitrarily pluck those tube sizes out of thin air. Uh, they sat down, they modeled it, they carefully considered the loads, and they designed the engine mount that they thought was up to the task uh, that they had set for them. And, and what they found in practice 
was that sometimes things are more complicated than they initially appear, and they don't necessarily reveal themselves right away. So when Sonics gives a, a conservative operating envelope, whether that's firewall forward weight, whether that's sport pilot compliance on stall speed or, you know, or whatever, uh, or to include um, G-load and things like that, uh, aerobatic gross weight, you know, all those types of things, they're being very conservative to add that designer's margin on there to account for things that are maybe not necessarily obvious right up front. And, and there's a really good reason, you know, why they do that as a, as a professional engineer approach uh, that's the type of thing that an engineer does is they design it for the mission, they set their their tolerances, and they have their margin that they don't like people dipping into. On the other side of that, the first thing that the, the marketing guys do when the engineer hands them a design, they go, hey, that's really great. Can we get a little bit more out of it? I'll just go and shave a little here, <laughs> shave a little there. And that's a that's yeah. a dynamic that's been going on since airplanes first hit the scene. So I understand why they do what they do. I, I'm not in a position to say whether they're being overly conservative or not, but it helps to understand their mentality. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. All right. So weight and balance, uh, no, no issues there. You're satisfied with your envelope you're satisfied with your performance, all that. Real happy with it. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about just all the performance parameters. So give us a feel for how does the airplane fly with that 115, 120 horse Corvair on the nose? Uh, you know, when I do a maximum performance takeoff here in the climb, uh, I've, I've just gotten into 1300 feet per minute climb, which is a lot of fun. Uh, it was funny. Uh, I was out there talking to a guy with, uh, I'm trying to remember what kind of, oh, a guy who flies a, a J3 Cub and he's talking about, you know, him and a passenger and he's flying and, you know, he's happy to get two to 300 feet a minute climb. Well, when I did my full weight testing, I was freaking out. I was only getting five to 600 feet a minute climb. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my God, is something wrong? No, it was just the weight. But, you know, it's, it's, I'd been so used to this, you know, rocket ship performance that that was, that was eye-opening. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's in LSA parameters for stall speed uh, uh, comfortably. So it's not as low as what Sonics publishes, at least not in my particular aircraft. But I'm real happy with that. And stall speed is notoriously hard for an individual builder to verify anyway. Uh, on mine, I have some instrument error on, on my stall, and I stall at an indicated 36 to 38 miles an hour. And I, I know that's artificially low, but there's nothing I can do about it. And when I started testing mine, I was I was trying all sorts of different ways to bend the pedo tubes in the static tube. Uh, because mine was, I have a, a, the Grand Rapids uh, EIS, you know, just that very basic, like Tony Spicer had in his airplane. Uh, and the airspeed, it, it, it below 24 indicated, it shows nothing. And I was stalling below 24 indicated. And I'm thinking that's not a good situation. I also have a, a lift reserve indicator. So I do have that. And I knew that where, how I was getting close to stall, but the, the indicated speed just wasn't working. And what I ended up doing after several weeks of, trying to calibrate my airspeed indicator is I just unplugged the the static tube and I put a little uh, cap a rubber cap on top of it with some holes drilled on four sides just to keep big pieces of dirt from getting in there and I just left it inside the wing uh, so now when I uh, when I stall it full flaps the indicated is 55 
you know, but the stall speed is in the mid 40s. And I'm happier with that. You know, I'd rather see what indicated speed I'm stalling at versus getting down below 24 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, rate of climb is good. Even all up at gross weight, you're still getting very respectable rate of climb out of it. Yeah. Have you had it up high? Any comment on high altitude performance? Yeah, I mean, with uh, with sport pilot license, I'm capped at 10,000 feet, at least down here in the lowlands, and uh, uh, I've had it up to just over 9.5, you know, and it takes a while to climb up there, but, uh, you know, as far as, as temperatures, you know, as you keep holding the mixture back because you have to lean it out, but the climb rate, I'm trying to remember uh, what it was. It was a couple months back that I did that, and I wasn't really pushing it hard. I didn't want to well, I don't overdo it at high altitude, but I still remember, recall getting, you know, three to 400 feet a minute on a nice, easy climb. Uh, temperatures are great in every regime, flight regime. The temperatures, uh, uh, CHTs are just gorgeous. In fact, they might be a little on the low end in the wintertime. Uh, same with the oil temperatures, uh, you know, but indicated at full throttle, my wide open throttle so far, I've gotten up you know, uh, north of 3,250 and indicated airspeeds. And I mean, this is up, you know, three, 4,000 feet uh, over 140. So real happy with that. It zips around real good. And, uh, but the low speed performance, I really enjoy too, because I, I like to fly slow patterns. I like to try to make that first turn off if I can. And I fly in and out of a pretty small airport, small in terms of the runway length. The, the, the long runway is 2,800 feet. You know, so I, I do like to keep it kind of slow and, and bring it in and, and stop short, not have to use my brakes as well. So, you know, it's got the range covered and everybody who flies to Sonics knows that you can go fast and you can go slow and it can handle either way. Yeah. And then what about your fuel burn? Um, what have you been able to kind of nail down on fuel burns? I don't really flog it when I go any distance or so I'm usually burning between five and six gallons an hour and I don't have a, a fuel flow or a totalizer. I've just marked off, you know, I've got the translucent tank. And so I would add a gallon Sharpie a mark add another gallon Sharpie a mark and I'll go back and calculate after every flight. I'll, I'll, I know, you know, what I was filled to pre-flight and post-flight. I'll go back and do the numbers. And it is consistently, you know, if I'm if I'm going pretty easy, it's five gallons an hour, no problem. And if I'm pushing it a little further, if I'm doing a cross-country, I'm up about six. And so I'm real satisfied with that, too. Yeah. Okay. So five to six, and that's really a block-to-block calculation? Yep. Exactly. Okay. Well, uh, all your numbers sound very familiar to a Jabiru-powered airplane. I mean, as they should, 115, 120 horse. No matter what engine is delivering it, it's going to make the airplane perform similarly. Yeah. So sounds very familiar to a six-cylinder Jabber. Good. Good. I'm not jealous then. Well, you know, there are there are certain <laughs> tricks that us Jabiru pilots have, have learned over the years. And uh, those are available only to select individuals. Um, we don't share those freely. Understood. <laughs> Uh, okay, so what about just operational um, considerations of the engine? Um, you know, pre-flighting it, warm-up, how you handle it, you know, just, just stuff like that. Tell us about how you how you manage your engine. Sure, and, and this will also get into, you know, my experience has not been without some bumps in the road, too. Uh, when I first started, well, back when I, I first rolled the aircraft out of the hangar and had the engine on the front and started up, uh, you know, you, uh, with the Corvairs, especially at the Corvair College, they can do the engine runs. They have a nice cooling shroud that you attach to the top. 
You can run it for 30, 40 minutes, really do a good break and run. Uh, if you're not at a Corvair college, you should do the same thing on your own aircraft. So I built a nice cooling shroud, went out there, ran it for an hour. Everything was great. Uh, when it came time to do a two-minute test, which you, uh, Willie Wynn advocates this, uh, and so does Dan Waisman uh, religiously, and I, I buy it, is, uh, you know, go out there and, and you know, ch chalk it up into climb attitude and run that sucker full throttle for two minutes straight. And if, you know, if your engine can take that, then you know it can take a, a climb to altitude. Well, one thing I didn't know is that if your RPM starts to slowly creep down and creep down and creep down and creep down, that's an indication of detonation. Uh, didn't know that. Uh, less than a month after I did that and noted that, and I thought it was a successful two-minute run because the temperatures uh, you know, stayed fine. And I will say, a disclaimer here, that I measure my cylinder head temperatures at the uh, stock Corvair head locations, which means I only have one on each side. And I also only measure two EGTs. Uh, so I know I'm, you know, taking some risk there, but that's my decision as well. Uh, you know, but the, the, the indicated temperatures looked fine. But here, uh, about a month after I did this run, thinking everything was hunky-dory, uh, uh, William Wynn, and everybody knows he's very prolific in his writing, uh, one of the articles that he put out in flycarbeer.net was that any uh, reduction in RPM is detonation. And I thought, oh, man, I probably just fried my engine. Uh, you know, I went out there, did a compression check. It was okay. Uh, I tried to do another uh, two-minute test, and same thing was happening. And I'm just like, oh, crap. You know, I probably need to take these off. And I got in touch with Dan Waisman. Uh, he did the reconditioning of my heads, and so I got in touch with him. And uh, uh, he and Rachel are a delight to work with, his wife. Uh, they're back in touch with you, you know, real quickly. And he said, you know what? It sounds like classic overheating on the ground situation. Take off the heads, send them back. We'll take a look at them. We'll clean them up. We'll do anything we need to do and get them back to you. So, you know, that was operator error. Just, you know, what you don't know can sometimes hurt you. And in that case, it did. So that was a, a, a you know, somewhat expensive lesson. But I got the heads back. And so now I have this knowledge uh, under under my belt. So... Uh, for first flight, uh, in order to make sure that temperatures stay good as well, uh, Dan Wiesman's advice was, you know, run up the engine just until the oil temperature starts to rise, then get out on the runway and take off and do your first flight. And I did that in September of last year, and everything went well. Uh, as we start getting into the winter time, though, I didn't really change my approach, which in retrospect now is probably not a good thing to do. I was willing to go ahead and, and, you know, start running up the engine at 80 degrees oil temperature and, uh, you know, get out on the runway at 100 degrees oil temperature. And there were some days in the wintertime where I was barely getting 130 oil temp in the air, and that was with both sides blocked off with tape. Uh, one situation that happened to me, and uh, chalk went up to oil analysis, I'm a true convert and a believer, uh, I'd been cutting open my oil filter and not seeing any real obvious oil chunks, but there was this sheen, kind of a gold color sheen to it. And I'm thinking, oh, all right, it's breaking in, whatever. Uh, and then again, William uh, writes uh, an article about, you know, you really ought to be thinking about oil analysis if you want to keep good tabs on your engine. I thought, you know what, he's right. So I, I sent off for the kit and had it analyzed, and uh, it was uh, copper content was off the charts. I, I'm, I, I will bring it back to how I operate the engine here. Uh, uh, but this is important, you know, lessons learned from one guy, and if it can be helpful to anybody else, it'll be great. 
the uh, uh, oil analysis indicated copper that was off the charts. And the guy who does the oil analysis, he's also a, a Corvair builder uh, out of uh, Arizona. And he said, you know what? He talked to William about the, the results and he said, you know, take a look down there, pull up the distributor shaft and take a look at the uh, uh, distributor drive gear that comes off the crankshaft. Um, otherwise, you know, just monitor and see what happens. But that was William's idea. And I took the distributor shaft out and that distributor drive gear, which is brass, was just mangled. Uh uh, I ended up having to take the engine off of the mount and putting it on a table out there at the hangar. And I, I pulled the back end off. And again, having assembled it, there was no trepidation there at all. I just pulled it right off. And uh, yeah, that gear was torn up. It wouldn't have lasted another hour. It was really kind of uh, sobering when you see it. And what was the ultimate cause for that gear to fail? There's three possible uh, scenarios that, that I'm thinking of for. First of all is, you know, was there an installation error? And I was thinking about this as I was taking, you know, pulling things apart so I could pull that gear off as a press fit on the rear of the crank. And I, I pull it off as I'm pulling the different parts off, trying to see, is was there installation error here? There was nothing that, that was apparent. And so I kind of put that aside. Uh, the second possibility is operator error uh, with uh, Corvair engines. If you operate it, uh, uh, you know, too cold, uh, this has a high volume oil pump. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's working hard. And when your oil is at a really low temperature, you know, is that putting, uh, uh, you know, unnecessary drag on all the components that are trying to drive this oil through the engine. And again, you know, I was not uh, uh, taking the time to really thoroughly warm the engine up. I was doing preheat in the wintertime, but, uh, you know, it was, it was real cold here this past winter. Uh, and as a new airplane owner, I was bound and determined to go fly it. So, you know, perhaps I took some, some flights that maybe I shouldn't have, or at least I certainly should have warmed it up more. So I think in terms of operator here, because of how I ran my engine and because I didn't take the advice that's out there commonly for the Corvair engine to warm it up to 130, 140 degrees before takeoff, that may have had a role in really wearing through that gear. The third possibility, and it may be a combination of some of these, is uh, the materials. Uh, most, For the most part, uh, if you look at the 2014 uh, conversion manual that William put together, and I believe it's also in the uh, engine assembly manual that Dan put out there, they say go ahead and, and reuse the original uh, GM uh, 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 gear that you took off your crank when you sent it in to be reconditioned, because you can reuse those as long as it's in good condition. Well, me getting a brand new crank, uh, the billet crank, I purchased a reproduction from Clark's Corvairs. Uh, now, like a lot of folks do these days, if something's made in the USA, they will, you know, put full banner about that made in USA. And, you know, so it's usually pretty obvious. Otherwise, uh, as with other parts from Clark's, they're made from, you know, who knows where. And, you know, what is the quality control? You know, who knows? Uh, so... Well, it, could materials have played a part of that as well? Could have, who knows. Uh, to put my mind at ease, what I did when I put it back together is I purchased a new old stock GM part from back in the day. I opened up the bag that it was in and installed it uh, and put everything back together. And with the assembly manual this time, in addition to the conversion manual, I felt real confident about getting everything back together as well. And now I'm, I'm religious not only about oil analysis every time, because that did save my bacon, 
uh, it is uh, uh, warming it up properly. You know, I, I don't even do the, the full throttle run up uh, until 120 degrees oil temp. I don't roll out onto the runway to take off until I'm at 140 degrees. Uh, so that's, you know, and it takes a few minutes for it to warm up and that's fine. You know, who's in a rush. And, uh, so as far as operating the engine, that's the part that I really look at, uh, oil pressure, you know, you don't ever want it to go over 60 pounds. And in mine, I rarely see it get up to 50 pounds, just, you know, the, the first lap around the pattern. If I'm, if I'm just staying in the pattern, uh, you know, when I go full throttle on takeoff, it probably comes up to 46, 48 pounds, and then it'll drop off to anywhere between 43, uh, excuse me, uh, 38, 42 pounds uh, through the rest of the flight, at least until you go to idle down in the flare. Uh, you know, cylinder head temps, uh, <laughs> they barely break 300. Uh, even in some, I was out earlier tonight flying it around. I think I got up to 302 on the hot cylinder, the number one cylinder. Uh and EGTs, you know, you just keep an eye on your mixture and I try to, you know, keep those relatively sane as well, certainly in the climb. Uh, you know, I, I, I get the sense that you can really push this engine to the limit and get a heck of a lot of performance. But, you know, I, my main goal is to get it into the air and to have fun doing it and to do it reliably so I don't push it too hard. Uh, one other part that I'll, I'll point out with the Corvair is the necessity to really use a timing light to set the uh, timing and being a guy I'm you know 44 years old so I've never had a car where I've ever had to sit there and use the timing like to time it I uh, can't even change your own oil these days um, uh, but you know just to, to have the experience of how little you need to turn the distributor cap to make a large difference in the timing is a real eye-opener knowing that if you don't have your timing in place either you're going to be robbing yourself of a lot of power on the low end or you're you know, putting yourself into real danger of detonation and uh, having been there before, at least overheating, I don't care to go there as well. So heed that advice, you know, use the timing light, get another pilot out the airport to help you run it up. And uh, it puts out, you know, it puts out good power if you set it up right. Mm -hmm. Right. What kind of oil are you running in yours? The uh, Shell Rotella T4, which is a 15W40. And is that what William Wynn recommends? That's what he and Dan both recommend, yes. Okay. I'm guessing, uh, you know, normal oil change intervals, off-the-shelf uh, automotive oil filters, all that. Yeah, it's the K&N uh, 1008 filter, I think it is, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the same you would use on a Mazda Miata. It's that tiny little filter. It's got the hex nut on the end, and you can safety wire it. I never tighten it with the hex end. I just use that to take it off. I, I hand tighten and then safety wire it. And I do like the safety wire provision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's great. All that stuff, you can just run down to Napa, you know, to pick up whatever you need, which is handy because I have one right here in town. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, if we if we just kind of wrap this up, if a person is considering a Corvair to power their Sonics project, what do you think the, the budget that you ought to just throw out there for planning purposes for firewall forward, engine accessories, all that kind of stuff. And I, I'm really kind of looking to put this in perspective of we kind of know what an Aero-V is and a Jabiru, and what do you think the budget for a Corvair all up would be? Ballparking it, I know you can go online and easily, you know, price it out by going to the SPA website, at least if that's, you know, if you're going to follow that path, and that's what I did. You know, if, if budget it, you're probably looking these days 18 
I think that would be a fair estimate. You can always bling it out and go over and above that. But like I said, with mine, with uh, probably 10 to maybe 11 in the engine itself, you know, you got to buy the motor mount, the, the propeller costs some money. There are the accessories, the carburetor is expensive. You know, the ME3, if you, you know, I got mine overhauled. I actually got a really good deal on eBay for a junk one and got it overhauled in pristine uh, condition, but it costs money. So if, if I was just going to spitball it, take it as one guy's opinion, you're probably, you know, budgeting 18. Yeah. And if you're going to do a new Jabiru, you know, the price of a new Jabiru is 18 to 20,000, depending on the exchange rate and all that. And then you have about 2,500 in firewall forward items, including your prop. Now that's not a lot of stuff. You know, the engine mount is included in the, uh, in the base kit, assuming that you ordered it initially. Yeah. So yeah, you're, you're still in the same ballpark, probably a, a couple thousand cheaper in a Corvair setup than in a Jabiru setup. Right. Gary, what what are you looking at comparison to your recent UL build? Well, <laughs> I love that UL when it first came out, but the only thing that really stopped me from biting the bullet is was the cost of the engine. Uh, it's not inexpensive. Uh, the engine itself is pretty close to $26,000. Uh, the firewall forward and installation kit's about another $5,000. And then plus you're always going to have a little bit of odds and end things that, you know, you're going to be doing something a little bit differently. It'll be another out of pocket for a few hundred dollars as well. So it is, it is a pricey uh, endeavor. You know, most of the people, when we talk about building experimental airplanes, it's, it's like 30, 30, 30. In other words, 30% for the kit, 30% for the engine. And depending, you might get a little bit less on the avionics, but 30% for that as well too. So if you're spending 20,000 for an airframe kit, another 20,000 for the engine and, you know, possibly another 20,000 on avionics as well these days. Well, having seen uh, Gary's uh, UL installation, it is absolutely gorgeous. Um, I'm much prettier. And, yeah. it, you know, as far as looks, he wins. But my, I, I look better than Gary, too. So <laughs> no, I think the engine itself is a gorgeous engine. You know, it's uh, CNC billeted, uh, produced. Uh, so it's just, it's just phenomenal. You know, Zenith came out with a really first-class firewall forward package. Uh, being the traditional EAB guy, especially my second plane, of course, I thought I knew better in some things, and I've redone some things, especially with the uh, the fuel system. But that'll be a whole other story and video. But um, it's it's an impressive engine, but you know, they're not inexpensive. Okay. Well, Jason, uh, let's wrap this up with. Um Give us your your summary of lessons learned, advice to others, top three tips for success, whatever you want to call it. But let's let's give those those very succinct things as takeaways that you would offer up to a builder who wants to follow in this path. Sure, and from from my point of view, I think this would apply no matter what route you decide to go. But uh, what really helped me is you know look for and listen to experience. And you said at the top of the show you know, beware the internet expert, uh, and also beware the, the hangar expert, the people on the field who, you know, when they here, I have a Corvair. Hey, I know cars. Let me go talk to this guy and let him know what I know. And, you know, that's great. You can be courteous and friendly, but at the end of the day, know who your experts are, you know, listen to their experience and follow that. I'm, I'm a big believer in when you choose a path, follow it. Uh, follow it to the end, especially if, if it's uh, proven to, to have success. Uh, 
you know, learn from those folks, do the best you can and don't cut corners. You know, I think I've heard you say this in other shows where if you get that sense in your gut of something ain't right, uh, go back and check it out and make sure it is, you know, and I think that that goes for airframe and everything else too. You know, we, I think a lot of us have had that experience when you did a part or something in your engine just didn't seem quite right. You knew it and it nagged at you and you try to, to, uh, you know, justify or make reasons for why you don't have to go back and deal with it. But you know, at the end of the day, that that's what you have to do. So uh, my advice would be don't cut any corners, you know, uh, for the, the Corvair option using Williams recipe here with Dan Weisman's support. Uh, you know, they, they tell you exactly what you need to do. And there's not a whole lot of fluff there. So if you follow the parts, I think you'll, you'll achieve some success. And the last part I'll say, just because you, you know, I said it before, but based on my experience with uh, uh, the, the oil analysis and what that, that uh, distributor drive gear looked like, I'm a firm believer. I am a religious convert to oil analysis. It's cheap insurance. And, uh, my, I've done two more oil analyses since then, and they've come back just pristine. It's just beautiful. But I feel very comfortable knowing that if something starts to develop again, I will catch it early and, uh, you know, really know what to do about it. So that's in a nutshell what I would say. Yeah, and I do oil analysis on mine. Uh, I have not found anything, you know, come back in it. But there are just tons of stories out there of people who have done exactly like you. They, yep. um, they have caught a problem before it has had a catastrophic failure, and they've been able to do something about it. Firm believer, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, um, where should people go for more information? You know, you talked about builder websites. You talked about Fly Corvair and, and Dan Wiesman's company. But just yep. give us the rundown of your most valuable resources for more info. You know what? If the Corvair speaks to you or that's something you want to check out, and if you're uh, somewhere close to it, or even if you're not, if you need to travel, check out a Corvair College. That was that was one of the most rewarding and just plain fun experiences I've had. I had while building the airplane. Uh, great community of people. Everybody's getting together and pitching in and helping out. We were pitched in a great big tent next to the Zenith factory down in in Missouri. And, you know, there had to have been a couple dozen, maybe 30 guys there. And everybody is pitching in and helping everybody else out. You learn a ton. You see every possible phase of the, the Corvair build from uh, just a grungy, dirty core engine that somebody's just turning the first nut to pull it apart right up through the engine run uh, and everything in between. Even if you're not, you know, actively building yourself, uh, you know, you've got people there that know what they're doing. I was able to get to the point of installing my fifth bearing with Dan Waysman standing there right next to me telling me what, you know, what I'm doing and, and how it looks. So that was real cool. Um, other than that, you know, uh, uh, I, I've not really, you know, I'm, I, I love the Sonics Builders website and I've not found a comparable resource in the Corvair world. I know they have a couple of chat rooms, but A, I find them difficult to find and B, I find them also uh, home to some of those internet experts. And so I just, I don't have the time for that. Uh, so really it is, you know, the, uh, the William Wynn's two websites, the .com and the .net, Dan Wiesman, of course, and the builder's websites. And as Sonics guys, don't be afraid to look at the Zenith guys, the 601 and the 650, because they have a long history of the Corvair stuff. And uh, that helps to fill some of the gaps. Uh, you know, sometimes they just have that camera shot from a slightly different angle. And that's exactly what you needed to figure out how to do it on the Sonics. 
those were really helpful. And when I got to the point of doing wiring, for instance, for my avionics too, with the Corvair, uh, you know, tying that in, I was, you know, I emailed some of those Zenith guys and they were very gracious to share with me their schematics and everything like that. So I've not gone so far as to reach out to the Vans guys. I still have an issue there, but the, the Zenith guys and their Corvair builds, they're all right. Well, good. And if you have um, like a list of, of favorite build sites that you referenced, um, send that along to me and I'll put that in the show notes and maybe we can get people onto some really good quality references. I have a lot of those bookmarks, so I will do that. Okay. Well, good. Well, I'll chime in. Jason, great information. I think you did a wonderful job of explaining the Corvair process. Cool. And uh, I hope it spurs others to, to consider it. It's interesting to see a successful uh, and happy uh, Corvair guy. Um, personally for me, I thought it was a little bit too heavy on the nose, but, um, <laughs> I like the engine. I think it's a perfect, uh, a solution for experimental aviation and, uh, a good, uh, competitor to the Jabru and UL, uh, solutions. And, and my final thoughts, I'll just kind of summarize them like this. Um, the Corvair, if you're willing to do it properly and to follow a proven recipe for success and you don't feel the need to necessarily reinvent every aspect of it, uh, leverage the work that Dan Wiesman and William Wynn have done, um, I think that can be a, a successful way to go. If you're looking for a budget engine, probably ought to keep looking. I don't think that you, you can build a budget Corvair and get the reliability that you really want out of it. Uh, and so that's part of being honest with yourself. You have to be honest about the capabilities of the Sonics. If you load it up with every feature that you want, you're going to lard the airplane up and you're going to degrade performance. Whether you've got a Corvair on there or not, that is something that builders are, are always challenged with. So if you're going to put a heavier engine on it, you have to be extra attentive to the decisions that you make to, to keep the all-up weight in a range that's still going to work well. So if you are mindful of that, I think that it's not an unsolvable problem. I would not necessarily push that decision back into Sonics's face. You're likely to get a cool reception, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. As Sonics makes their choices as as the business, they protect their interests, and I think that it's perfectly within their right to do so. We as builders, we do the same thing. We uh, we look out for our interests, we make our decisions, and and we just need to be really ready to kind of go forward from there. And then lastly, make sure that you build the airplane for your mission and be honest about what your mission really is. We've touched on this uh, dozens of times. Everybody has a notion of what they're going to use their airplane for. And sometimes that's a kind of a stylized fantasy notion. Make sure that you invest some time into really thinking about what am I going to do with this airplane and what do I need to do that successfully? And then build the airplane that actually is the mission you're going to use it for. A lot of people build the wrong airplane just flat out. And uh, that never works out good for anybody. So if you're going to use a Corvair, that's just one more aspect to consider about what your mission for your airplane really is. But when you build one airplane, it's always good practice for the next one. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, Gary, I think we talked about this last time. If you're going to build your forever airplane, that's a harder thing to build. But if you're just going to build an airplane for right now and you're going to build another airplane later for maybe a different mission, that opens up a, a whole wide variety of possibilities. A lot of possibilities. Yep. Yeah, and even if you make a bad engine choice, Gary, you can make the right one. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, sometimes you go a little bit on the cheats that you're thinking, but, you know, you end up paying the price eventually. We love you, Gary. Come on. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> I know. I know you want to pet my engine. <laughs> oh, I I've seen it. It's pretty. I want to fly behind it. But yeah, it's coming up. All right. Well, good deal. Jason, thanks for running us through all that. Thanks for being very candid about the decisions and the thought process. I think that's really valuable for new people. You know, you're just one data point, but it's valuable data. And if I can just put out a plug for other folks, you know, when a call for presenters or for people to come talk about your engine, you know, I've, I, I, I'm one guy's experience, but it, it's helpful, you know, for people who've listened to the show to, to hear that kind of input. And so I was, you know, happy to, happy to help out. Well, we appreciate it. You bet. All right. Well, I got one quick uh, announcement. There has been some chatter on the Sonics Builder Forum about uh, possibly doing some wing tanks. And this goes way back. You know, Jim Hickey had a set of the original tubular wing tanks, and, and he loves his to death. And when he went to Alaska, that was a big asset. And getting him safely from airport to airport. Other people have coveted his wing tanks. And uh, and there's a bunch of people that have kind of raised their hand and said, oh, I might be interested in wing tanks. So I have started just kind of consolidating interested people and looking at options to maybe get a production run of these wing tanks done. If you're interested and you haven't already reached out to me, send me an email and uh, I'll put you on the list. I don't know if this is possible or not, but the goal is to try to get a complete kit for under 1500 With the price of aluminum having gone up recently, that may be very difficult to do. But there's a couple of fab shops that I've been talking to and a couple of options, and we're just going to see if we can maybe turn out something that will replicate what Jim has been flying successfully in his. So more to follow, and if you're interested, reach out and let me know. All right, guys, John, Gary, good to hear from you again. Uh, Jason, look forward to meeting you at and uh, and drinking your beer at Oshkosh because we're going to hold you to it. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, we got beer from him. <laughs> With pleasure. With my pleasure. I just want to make sure we put a name tag on this guy so I can track him down while I'm there. Right. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll hold him down. Even though you're guy. not going to be camping with us, Gary. I'll be the guy with the growling speed cow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, our next episode will be uh, probably the final episode before we go off to, to AirVenture. And uh, that's going to be our AirVenture special. It's going to be Oshkosh Like a Pro. And we're going to talk about all the tips on going to Oshkosh. Everything from planning your flight and doing the arrival and where you stop for gas, planning for all those weird things, uh, you know, like coming in behind biz jets that try to flip you upside down and, and getting plenty <laughs> of gas so you don't have to hold for 45 minutes. Who are you going to talk to that knows anything about that? <laughs> you know, I, I have a I have a guy out there in mind who can talk about this. <laughs> and if Mike is listening, you know, uh, we're counting on him to provide some good stories for this year. So, yeah. Anyway, so we're going to run through all that, and it's going to be everything from getting around the grounds to you know the the Wednesday barbecue and Sonics events and basically everything that we've learned over a few years ago into Oshkosh that is super intimidating for people that haven't gone there before. We can just at least shed some light on how to make everything work and how to get the most out of your trip. So that'll be our next episode, Oshkosh Like a Pro. We'll do that uh, early July, and then we'll go off and we'll uh, record the next one from the grounds. Great. Looking forward to it. So for everybody else, uh, you can visit us on the web at sonicsflight.com. You can find the show notes at sonicsflight.com slash 38 and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, whatever, uh, or just listen to it right off of the webpage. You can use that feedback at sonicsflight.com email address to send us a note. If you have Oshkosh tips, 
please send them in. We will consolidate that stuff and just roll them into our own tips for the next episode. And take full credit for them. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're, we're pretty good at that, you know. So you send us uh, information and we uh, claim it as our own, right? <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'm going to say um, it's hot out, but there are plenty of good flying days. I am definitely looking forward to some a good stretch of flying, and, and I'll be doing some more of it as much as I can. Yeah, my calendar is filling up pretty quick with the trips. All right, guys, good to talk to you, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Adios. All right. Bye. Bye. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Select podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. They've kind of processed through that, and this is the the acknowledgement that yeah, we are bringing on extra people in the fabrication shop, and and um, you know we're doing it. Hello. Yeah, exactly. Sorry about that. Yeah, that um, every time that happens, you know that's that's beers on you at Oshkosh. So just just add that into your to do list. All right. Well, that's the first expect <laughs> right there. And it's, and and it's it, one one beer per ring. So what are we up to already? <laughs> You just need to move back to Colorado. Well, you know, there'll, there'll be chapters uh, in various places. So we'll put one at, at uh, you know, at Centennial Airport or, you know, one in uh, downtown Kansas City. And, you know, you can just move around. <laughs> Gary, I know just the guy that will uh, will start the syndicate in Colorado and then we'll all just join up. Mike's not going to bite. <laughs> not Mike. I'm talking about the other guy that has more money than sense. Uh, well, that's true. Carl might do it. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we're naming names. <laughs> You're giving up our trade secrets for the speed cow, and I don't like that. Um, <laughs> when you go Corvair, you have no options. So there you go. Well, I went. I went with the the Corvair Bowl yeah, on my yeah. Jabiru because yeah. I like the look of it. Yep. And uh, no, it, the, that you're. That's not good. You can't be just giving up those secrets. <laughs> well, don't worry, John. I'm going to cut this whole part out. So <laughs> good, yeah. thank you. Because this is this is this is uh, you know this is like the magicians uh, talking in the background, going, "This is how I do this trick," and it's like, "Don't do that. You, this is magic." This I'm is how sure. we get that ten extra knots. <laughs> I'm, I was, was going to say, I'm sure it costs me a good 15 miles an hour, so that might dissuade some people from doing it. And, uh, you know, you also have to get the big uh, uh, spinner bowl from Vans as well to throw on the front. And, oh, uh, I know. And that, that just drives people nuts because they have a little tiny prop and this oh, big spinner. All the time, people are just like, that little thing <laughs> gets yeah. the airplane up in the air and says, yeah, it gets it up in the air. And it's, uh, yeah, doesn't it look nasty? It's just it, angry, isn't it? it? It is. I look at, you know, I put it back together. Whenever I have to take the cowl off and I put it back on, I just sit, I had this little, you know, lawn chair. I just sit down. I'm like, man, that just looks bad. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just, it's just angry. <laughs>